Chapter Five of the Four Pools Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Four Pools Mystery by Jean Webster. Chapter Five. Cat Eye Mose creates a sensation. For the next week or so, things went rather strangely on the plantation. I knew very well that there was an undercurrent of which I was supposed to know nothing, and I appeared politely unconscious. But I won't say but that I kept my eyes and ears as wide open as was possible, without appearing to spy. The chicken episode and Aunt Suki's convulsions turned out to be only the beginning of the Hant excitement. Scarcely a day passed without some fresh supernatural visitation. Radnor pooh-poohed over the matter before the Colonel and me, but with the Negroes I know that he encouraged rather than discouraged their fears, until there was not a man on our own or any of the neighbouring plantations who would have ventured to step foot within the laurel walk, either at night or in the daytime. At least there was only one. Cat-Eye Mose took the matter of the hand without undue emotion, a point which struck me as suggestive, for I knew that Mose was as superstitious as the rest when the occasion warranted. Once at least I saw Radnor and Mose in consultation, and though I did not know the subject of the conference, my suspicions were very near the surface. I came upon them in the stables, talking in low tones, Brad apparently explaining, and Mose listening with the air of strained attention which the slightest mental effort always called to his face. At my appearance, Radnor raised his voice, and added one or two directions as to how his guns would be cleaned. It was evident that the subject had been changed. Everything that was missing about the place, and there seemed to be an abnormal amount, was attributed to the hand. I do not doubt but that the servants made the hand a convenient scapegoat to answer for their own shortcomings, but still there were several suggestive depredations, horse blankets from the stable, clothes from the line, and more edibles than roast chicken from Nancy's larder. The climax of the absurdity was reached when there disappeared a rather trashy French novel, which I had left in the summer house. I asked Solomon about it, thinking that one of the servants might have brought it in. Solomon rolled his eyes and suggested that the hand had cotched it. I laughingly commented upon the occurrence at the supper-table, and the next day Rad handed me the book. Mose had found it, he said, and had brought it up to his room. All of these minor occurrences were stretched over a period of, say, ten days after the party, and though it gave me the uncomfortable feeling that there was something in the air which I did not understand, I did not let it worry me unduly. Radnor seemed to be on the inside track of whatever was going on, 
and he was old enough to take care of his own affairs. I knew that he had more than once visited the Laurel Walk after the house was supposed to be asleep, but I kept this knowledge to myself, and allowed no hint to reach the Colonel. I had, during these first few weeks, all the opportunity I wished of studying Moses' character. Radnor was occupied a good deal of the time. Spring on a big river plantation is a busy season, and as I had professed myself fond of shooting, the colonel turned me over to the care of Cat Eye Mose. Had I myself been choosing, I should have selected another guide, but Mose was the best hunter on the place, and as the colonel was quite untroubled by his vagaries, it never occurred to him that I might not be equally confident. In time I grew used to the fellow, but I will admit that at first I accepted his services with some honest trepidation. As I watched him going ahead of me, crouching behind bushes, springing from hammock to hammock, silent and alert, quivering like an animal in search of prey, my attention was centred on him rather than on any possible quarry. I shall never forget running across him in the woods one afternoon when I had gone out snipe-shooting alone, whether he had followed me or whether he had chosen the same vicinity by chance, I do not know, but at any rate, as I came out from the underbrush on the edge of a low, swampy place, I almost stepped on the man. He was stretched face downward on the black, oozy soil, with his arm buried in a hole at the foot of a tree. "'Why, Mose!' I cried in amazement. "'What on earth are you doing here?' He responded without raising his head. "'I's after a snake, sir. I see a big fat gutter snake a-loppin' in dis here hole, and he's skulking dar near thinking, like he gwine to fool me. But he can't do that, sir. I's got him by the tail, and I'll fetch him out.' He drew forth as he spoke, a huge black and yellow snake, writhing and hissing, and proceeded to smash its head with a stone. I shut my eyes during the operation, and when I opened them again, I saw to my horror that he was stuffing the carcass in the front of his shirt. "'Good heavens, Mose!' I cried aghast. "'What are you going to do with that? Boil it into oil, sir, to scar the witches off. Inquiry at the house that night brought out the fact that this was one of Moses' regular occupations. Snake's oil was in general favour among the Negroes as a specific against witches, and Mose was the chief purveyor of the lotion. Taken all in all, he was about as queer a human being as I have ever come across, and I fancy had I been a psychologist instead of a lawyer, I might have found him an entertaining study. I heard about this time some fresh rumours in regard to Radnor. One, and it came pretty straight, that he'd just lost a hundred dollars at poker. A hundred dollars may not sound like a very big loss in these days of bridge, but it was large for that place 
and it represented to Radnor exactly two months' pay. As overseer of the plantation, the colonel paid him $600 a year, a little enough sum considering the work he did. Rad had nothing in his own right. Aside from his salary, he was entirely dependent on his father, and it struck me as more than foolish for a young man who was contemplating marriage to throw away two months' earnings in a single game of poker. The conviction crossed my mind that perhaps, after all, Polly was wise to delay. I heard another rumour, however, which was graver than the poker affair. It was only a rumour, and when traced to its source, turned out to be nothing more tangible than somebody's hazarded guess. But without the slightest cause, the same suspicion had already presented itself to me, and that was that the Hant was a very flesh-and-blood woman. Radnor was clearly in some sort of trouble. He was moody and irritable, so sharp with the farm hands that several of them left and unusually taciturn with the colonel and me. To make matters worse, Polly Mathers was treating him with marked indifference, and openly bestowing her smiles upon Mattison. What the trouble was I could only conjecture, but I feared that she too had been hearing rumours. The Hank stories had been repeated and exaggerated until they contained no semblance of truth. By this time not only the Laurel Walk was haunted, but the Spring Hole as well, and it soon became a region of even greater fear than the deserted cabins. The Spring Hole was a natural cavity in the side of a hill a half-mile or so back from the house. It was out of this cavity that the underground stream flowed which fed the pools, and furnished such valuable irrigation to the place. All that part of Virginia is undermined with limestone caverns, and my uncle's was by no means the only plantation that could boast the distinction of a private cave. The entrance was half hidden among rugged piled-up boulders, dripping with moisture, and was not inviting. I remember chasing a rabbit into this cabin when I was a boy, and though it would have been an easy matter to follow him, I preferred to stay outside in the sunshine. The spring hole, then, was haunted. This did not strike me as strange. I rather wondered that it had not been from the first. It was a likely place for ghosts but the thing which did surprise me was the fact that it was Mose who brought the news. We were sitting on the portico after supper one night. It was almost dark, and the glow from our cigars was the one visible point in the scenery, when Mose came bounding across the lawn with his peculiar lopping run and fairly groveled at Radnor's feet, his teeth chattering with fear. I seemed a hint. Mas Rad, de Shona had all dressed in black and risen out of the spring hole. You fool, Radnor cried, get on your feet and behave yourself. It was the devil, Mose chattered. His face was black and his eyes was fire. You've been drinking, Mose, Radnor said sharply.
Get off to the quarters where you belong, and don't let me see you again until you are sober. And he shunted the fellow out of the way before he had time to say any more. I myself was tolerably certain that Mose had not been drinking, that, at least, was not in the list of his peculiar vices. He appeared to be thoroughly frightened. If not, he was a most consummate actor. In the light of what I already knew, I was considerably puzzled by this fresh manifestation. The colonel fretted and fumed up and down the veranda, muttering something about these fool niggers all being alike. He had bragged considerably about Moses' immunity in respect to Hans, and I think he was rather dashed at his favourite falling off. I held my peace, and Radnor returned in a few minutes. Rad, said the colonel, this thing's going too far. The whole place is infested with ghosts. They'll be invading the house next, and we won't have a servant left on the place. Can't you do something to stop it? Radnor shrugged his shoulders, and said that it was a pretty tough job to lay a ghost when there were twenty niggers on the place, but that he would see what he could do, and he presently drifted off again. That same night, about ten o'clock, I was reading before going to bed, when a knock sounded on the door, and Radnor appeared. He was unusually restless and ill at ease. He referred in a jesting fashion to the hand, discussed some neighbourhood gossip, and finally quite abruptly inquired, Arnold, can you lend me some money? Yes, I said. I think so. How much do you want? A hundred dollars, if you can spare it. Fact is, I'm a little hard up, and I've got a bill to meet. I have some money invested, but I can't put my hands on it just this minute. I'll pay you in a week or so, as soon as I get some cash. I wouldn't ask you, only my father is so blamed reluctant about paying my salary ahead of time. I wrote out a check and handed it to him. Rad, I said, you're perfectly welcome to the money. I'm glad to accommodate you, but if you'll excuse my mentioning it, I think you ought to pull up a bit on this poker business. You don't earn so much that if you're thinking of getting married, you can afford to throw any of it away. I'm only speaking for your good. It's no affair of mine, I added, as I saw his face flush. He hesitated a moment with the check in his hand. I know that he wanted to give it back, but he was evidently too hard-pressed. Oh, keep the money. I said, I don't want to pry into your private affairs. Only, I laughed, I do want to see you win out ahead of Madison, and I'm afraid you're not going about it the right way. Thank you, Arnold, he returned. I want to win a great deal more than you want me to, and if it's gambling you're afraid of, you can ease your mind, for I've sworn off. It's not a poker debt I want this money for tonight. I wouldn't be so secretive about the business, only it concerns another person more than me. Radnor, I said, I heard an ugly rumour the other day. I heard that the ghost was a live woman who was living in the deserted cabins under your connivance. 
I didn't believe it, but just the same it is not a story which you can afford to have even whispered. Radnor raised his head sharply. Ah, I see. His eyes wavered a moment, and then fixed themselves miserably on my face. Has, has Polly Mathers heard that? Yes, I returned. I fancy she has. He struck the table with a quick flash of anger. It's a damn lie, and it comes from Jim Mattison. And now, as to the events which followed during the night, I've repeated them so many times to so many different persons that it is difficult to me to recall just what were my original sensations. I went to bed, but I didn't go to sleep. This haunt business was getting on my nerves almost as badly as the Patterson Pratt case. After a time I heard someone let himself softly out of the house. I knew well that it was Radnor, and I didn't get up to look. I didn't want the appearance, even to myself, of spying upon him. After three-quarters of an hour or so, I was suddenly startled alert by hearing the squeak-squeak of a whippletree out on the lawn. It was the Colonel's buckboard which stood in need of oiling. I recognized the sound. Curiosity was too much for me this time. I slipped out of bed and hurried to the window. It was pretty dark outside, but there was a faint glimmer of starlight. Whoa, Jenny Lou, whoa! I heard Rad's voice scarcely above a whisper, and I saw the outline of the cart plainly with Rad driving, and either some person or some large bundle on the seat beside him. It was on the side farthest from me, and was too vague to be distinguished. He made a wide detour of the house across the grass, and struck the driveway at the foot of the lawn. The reason for this manoeuvre was evident. The gravel drive from the stables passed directly under the colonel's window. I went back to bed half worried, half relieved. I strongly suspected that this was the end of the ghost, but I could not help puzzling over the part that Radnor had played in the little comedy, if comedy it were. The stories that I had heard about some of his disreputable associates returned to my mind with unpleasant emphasis. I had gradually dozed off, when half waking, half sleeping, I heard the patter of bare feet on the veranda floor. The impression was not distinct enough to arouse me, and I have never been perfectly sure that I was not dreaming. I do not know how much time elapsed after this. I was sound asleep when I was suddenly startled awake by a succession of the most horrible screams I have ever heard. In an instant I was on my feet in the middle of the floor, striking a match and lighting a candle. I grabbed an umbrella, it was the only semblance of a weapon anywhere at hand, and dashed into the hall. The colonel's door was flung open at the same instant, and he appeared on the threshold, revolver in hand. "'Hey, Arnold, what's happened?' he cried. "'I don't know,' I gasped. 
I'm going down to see. We tumbled downstairs at such a rate that the candle went out, and we groped along in total darkness toward the rear of the house from where the sounds were coming. The cries had died down by this time into a horrible, inarticulate wail, half animal, half human. I recognized the tones with a cold thrill. It was Mose. We found him groveling on the floor of the little passage that led from the dining room to the serving room. I struck a light and we bent over him. I hated to look, expecting from the noise he was making to find him lying in a pool of blood. But he was entirely whole. There was no blood visible and we could find no broken bones. Apparently there was nothing the matter beyond fear, and of that he was nearly dead. He crawled to the colonel and clung to his feet, chattering an unintelligible gibberish. His eyes rolling wildly in the dim light showed an uncanny yellow gleam. I could see where he got his name. The colonel's own nerves were beginning to assert themselves, and with an oath, he cuffed the fellow back to a state of coherence. Stand up, you blithering fool, and tell us what you mean by raising such a fuss. Mose finally found his tongue, but we still could make nothing of his story. He had been out prospecting round, and when he came in to go to bed, the house servants slept in a wing over the rear gallery. He met the hand face to face, standing in the dining room doorway. He was so tall that his head reached the ceiling, and he was so thin that you could see right through him. At the remembrance, Mose began to shiver again. We propped him up with some whiskey and sent him off to bed, still twittering with terror. The colonel was bent on routing out Radnor to share the excitement, and I, with some difficulty, restrained him, knowing full well that Rad was not in the house. We made a search of the premises to assure ourselves that there was nothing tangible about Moses' hand, but I was in such a hurry to get the colonel safely upstairs again that our search was somewhat cursory. We both overlooked the little office that opened off the dining room. In spite of my manoeuvres, the colonel entered the library first and discovered that the French window was open. He laid no stress on this, however, supposing that Mose was the guilty one. He bolted it with unusual care, and I, with equal care, slipped back and unbolted it. I finally persuaded him that Mose's hand was merely the result of a fevered imagination fed on two weeks' diet of ghost stories, and succeeded in getting him back to bed without discovering Radnor's absence. I lay awake until I heard the sound of carriage wheels returning across the lawn, and a few minutes later footsteps enter the house and tiptoe upstairs. Then, as daylight was beginning to show in the east, I finally fell asleep, worn out with puzzling my head for an explanation which should cover at once Rad's nocturnal drive and Moses' hand. End of chapter 5